Good morning, Emmaus. We're going to be reading John chapter 11, starting in verse 45, if you want to read along with me. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered about. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, when Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Megan. Let's pray together. You guys are all set down now already. Getting lazy on me. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We remember that the prophet Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And we're thankful that as we read the scriptures and get into the story that John is telling in the life of Jesus, that we can place ourselves there and we can grow into these stories. And so I ask now that the seed of the scriptures, as they are sown into the soil of our hearts, that fruit would be produced, God, that we would be fruitful men and women who live lives that are much like this Mary in the story before us, that we would be men and women who know how to worship extravagantly, that we would not hold back in our worship of you. So now as we center our minds around this text, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, speak to us prophetically, specifically, things we need to hear from the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Hey, we're in our Gospel of John series. How many of you enjoy the Gospel of John? Been enjoying this series immensely. I love the Gospel of John. Um, When we come to this point in the Gospel narrative, Um, you'll notice that something begins to happen in the way that John retells the story of the life and times of Jesus, our Messiah. Um, It's almost as if if you movie buffs know in a scene in a movie that the camera can tell a story by sometimes a camera lens will will sort of narrow and zoom in on a scene. And and, and you know that something significant is happening. And, And if you would, We've just crossed over a significant section in our study in John's gospel, and that is John is going to zoom in on the final week of Jesus' life. Now that's significant because he spends about 11 chapters on the first three years 
of the ministry of Jesus. He skips over his childhood, birth story, baptism. He gets right into the ministry years, and in 11 chapters, he's done. And where we sit right now in John's gospel, we are one week away from Jesus Christ being crucified. He spends 10 chapters, the final 10 chapters, on the final week of Jesus. And it's as if John is trying to say something to us. That is, of all the things that Jesus accomplished in his earthly life. John would tell us later that many volumes could be written of all the things that Jesus did. But he wrote these things as if to say, this final week, this crucifixion, this journey to the cross, this is the climax, the apex, the sum total, the greatest act that Jesus performed. And so we narrow the focus down, and, and really, for the remainder of our study of the Gospel of John, just remember this, we are going to be moving toward the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And that's how John frames up the story, but tucked into this very selective retelling of Jesus' final week is the story about a dinner party in Bethany. Of all the things that John could have included in this final week of the life of Jesus, he includes Jesus going to the house of some friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, in this little town called Bethany, where he would enjoy a good meal with some good people. And into this particular dinner party, we, as we will see, comes an extravagant act of worship. And so we center ourselves at this dinner party in Bethany, where Jesus is eating good food with good people and good drink and laughter and joy. How many of you like a good dinner party? I mean, not the kind of dinner party where you show up and it's formal and you're just getting to know everybody. I'm talking about where you could kick your shoes off, you know the food's going to be thrown down, and the people around the table you're familiar with. Isn't that just a good feeling? Doesn't that just bring joy to your heart? Well, Jesus is in that type of environment. This is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These are like homeboys. This is like homegirl. This is like his peeps. Like he, he, he goes frequently to this house, and, and while in this house, Jesus is enjoying a very ordinary meal. No dark clouds of pessimism are, are around the life of Jesus right now as the cross is looming larger in his life. Actually, the Bible tells us what Jesus' mentality was as he approached the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So there was, according to the writer of Hebrews, foreseeable joy in the midst of the pain. And although the cross was going to be pain, Jesus saw the joy that came on the other side of the cross, the redemption of humanity, a, a creation of a new covenant, a new way to be human. And so here we are at this moment where Jesus is sitting with the cross, looming over, eating and drinking with friends. And we know that his final week is not going to be an easy one. As we'll see, as we, Megan read, uh, we see that Jesus uh, in his final week would be worshipped by a simple woman. He will be betrayed by one of his closest friends, forsaken by virtually every one of his disciples, rejected by religion, condemned by the government, and murdered in the most excruciatingly painful way devised by man. Death by crucifixion as he takes on the sins of the world. Yet right in the midst of this final week of Jesus' life, there's a beautiful story of worship. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22, that a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. And this morning, I simply want to talk about having a merry heart or a heart like Mary's. Because she's sort of the center stage in this little vignette she takes center stage as she does this extravagant worship. And, and Solomon talks about the, the, the effect that a merry heart has on the body. And there's actually medical research that's been done to prove that a merry heart or what we would call laughter or joy or merriment actually has a physical life-giving effect on your body. Did you know that laughter is good for you? So watching some Jim Gaffigan or some Brian Regan or being around your funniest friend, that actually is like taking your vitamins every day. Stanford University actually, uh, in their research, said that 
People who laugh more are healthier because laughter releases the helper T cells into the immune system, which fights off bacteria and thus staves off diseases. Maryland University in their research said that people who don't laugh very much are 40% higher in their risk for having a heart attack. So don't worry about laughing too much. You're not going to laugh too much in your lifetime. It's good to let out a little laughter every once in a while. And to my conclusion, that's why my wife is so healthy, because she likes to laugh. And before we had children, I was sort of the brunt of all of her laughter. I was the, the object of, of her health, life-giving merriment of heart as she laughed at me. But for those of you who have children, um, you know that they are also an opportunity for much laughter. Um, and uh, I was thinking back to some memories uh, and I have to always ask my kids for permission to tell their stories. <laughs> the, the, kind of the liability of being a preacher's kid is your dad tells all the stories from up front. Um, but I was thinking back uh, uh, several Saturdays uh, over the last several years of our life during the spring and fall. Um, most of our Saturday afternoons and mornings were spent at soccer fields. How many of you soccer parents out there? Um, so we're out there in the family minivan, you know, it's uh, sweltering hot or whatever, or freezing cold, rain and, and, and all that. And we're out there on the soccer field watching some seven, eight-year-olds um, play their version of the game of soccer. Um, it's kind of like herding cats, you know, I mean. Um, so we'd be sitting there, but every once in a while, into sort of this mundane activity would come these moments of laughter that would make it all worth it. <laughs> and uh, one particular fall season, a child who uh, asked to be not named um, was trying football for the very first time, flag football. And uh, so it was kind of a big deal. He or she, whichever of, of the genders of my children was playing this game, um, had decided that they wanted to try this for the first time. And so it was kind of the big time. And, and uh, we, we showed up on Saturday. And, and, you know, one of the things about football that unlike soccer and the other sports that this particular child had played, you have to have a mouthpiece. And that was kind of a big deal. Even though it's flag football, you got to have a mouthpiece. And, and there's a little bit that could go wrong just having a mouthpiece when you're eight or nine years old. Um, and so we're at the flag football, uh, you know, field and, and whatever, and the game starts. And to our surprise, this child is put at quarterback. And we're like, really? Wow, okay. And, and so, you know, this particular child gets up there and um, it, is, is, it lines up behind the center just right, mouthpiece in, and actually takes a shotgun formation. We're like, whoa, what's going on here? And, and, and then shouts out a really convincing hut, hut, hike. And as the hut, hut, hike comes out, um, this child got a little enthusiastic and actually spit their mouthpiece out on the field, which isn't really that big of a deal. But the newness of the game and the environment, this child was probably imagining the nine-year-old big for his age, middle linebacker coming in and knocking his teeth out. So he instinctively, as he spits it out and shouts hike, goes down for his mouthpiece. And the center, as if he had timed it just perfectly, hikes the ball and hits my little quarterback right in the head. <laughs> and the ball bounces off his head and it's fumble on the field. First play, first time at quarterback ever and all of my dreams of retiring because my child was a professional athlete went out the window and I realized we probably need to study and work on academics as our road to success um, <laughs> instead. Uh, but the Bible says that the merry heart is good like a medicine. And from Mary, we learn the key to having a merry heart, which goes far beyond laughter, of course, as good as laughter can be, a merry heart is also derived from worship, as Mary teaches us, this sacrificial act of worship. Now the context here, it was six days before the Jewish Passover celebration. Now the Jewish Passover celebration was a major holiday, major festival commemoration in Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem in Jesus' time was populated typically around 80 to 100,000 people, average. But around the time of the Passover, the feasts of Passover and Pentecost and unleavened bread, the city would fill up 
to over 3 million people coming to worship and commemorate the Passover event, which of course comes from that time where Israel was exiled and, and, and enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And that final night of the Exodus, of course, as death was passing over each home in Egypt, the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorposts and death passed over every home where there was blood. And so this Passover commemoration was a big deal in Jerusalem. And so that's sort of the scene here. It's six days before Passover. So people are starting to, to come into the city and things are starting to bustle. The shops are busy and hotels are full and Jesus is there. And John tells us in chapter 11 that at this time, because of a plot against him, he had to go into hiding. I don't know if you noticed that as Megan was reading, but look again at verse 54 of chapter 11. Because of this plot to kill Jesus, verse 53 says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, verse 54, chapter 11, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And so Jesus comes out of hiding to have dinner at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. Because of the plot to kill him, he'd been in hiding. He comes out of hiding and he begins to enjoy this meal with his good friends there in Bethany. Now, keep in mind, if you don't know this about the Jewish way of eating, especially in Jesus' day, they did not do it like we do it, sitting on high-packed chairs at a, a table about yay high, but actually, the Jews, when they would eat, and maybe it's better for digestion, but they would lay on like low couches and rest on their left elbow and shovel food into their mouth with their right hand. It was all finger food kind of stuff. I mean, just pita and meat and grease and just pouring out down your face and, and wine. And, and it's kind of like, you know, a Super Bowl party, just a bunch of men slaying around, shoving food into their face. And so, so just, you get the picture, Jesus is just lounging around with his friends. Wouldn't that be awesome? We need to, we need to go back to this way of eating, all right? Um, and so Jesus is there sitting around with his friends, having this great meal, eating and he awaits this crucifixion. And while doing so at an ordinary dinner party, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, comes out with this extravagant act of worship. And in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 3, it just simply says about this act of worship that Mary gave, it says that she broke the box or the jar. Her worship was box-breaking worship as she lavishly pours out her worship on Jesus in this extravagant act. And in doing so, she broke the rules of propriety in the relationship that a single female would have with a Jewish rabbi. But this is an act of worship. It's prophetic, as we'll see. And so she breaks the box. And actually, if you read Mark's gospel translation of the story, he doesn't even name Mary. He just simply calls her the woman that broke the box. So if we didn't have the other gospels, John's gospel and the other two synoptics, all we would know about her is that this was the woman who broke the box. The box of religious protocols, the box of social propriety, the box of uh, her marital dowry, as we'll see. She broke the box and anointed a king. And sometimes our relationship with the Lord can become so boxed in. So boxed in by our insecurities or the type of church that we grew up in or, or whatever those things might be that come into our lives that create the boxes societally. But there are times when you've just got to break the box. You've got to recklessly begin to worship the, the, the Lord who saved you and pull out all the limitations and, and begin to just box-breaking type of worship that Mary gives to Jesus here. You've just got to break the box of your routines and traditions and all those things that hold you back. And this is really an example of what happens when a sinner worships. How many of you ever been in an environment where you've been around church people for a long time and that's great, I love church people. I've been in church a long time. I'm a church people. But then into that church people environment comes somebody who you know has just been saved from a very 
hard life and they, they meet Jesus for the first time. Have you seen this? Isn't that a great thing to see? Man, I, I covet that for our community more and more and more. God, bring us people that are just coming to Jesus and, and let us rejoice with them as they come to Jesus. And, and, and when you see a sinner worship, boy, it's very different because they don't, they don't have all the church baggage to say, oh, you can't do it like this or you gotta act like that. They just come in and they're crying and their hands are up in the air or they're, they're waving around, they're dancing. They are on their face it's an incredible thing. It's very convicting for us who have been in church for too long that don't break the box very often to watch a sinner worship because sinners worship without limitations because, Lord, you've been so good to me because, Lord, where would I be without you? Because I know that if you had not come around me and taken over my life, I would be so lost and empty and living in vanity. When was the last time it could be said about the way you were worshiping Jesus that you broke the box, that you just went ahead and did a Mary on the whole thing and said, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna extravagantly, emotionally, nothing wrong with emotions, y'all. A lot of people apologize. We're not trying to be emotional. Look, God gave you emotions. Y'all use them for a lot of things. Jesus is a good reason and source for your emotions to be centered. It's fine to be emotional in church. It's, it's one of the best places to get emotional. Yes, we want to be centered in truth, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Man, you should, sometimes you should be tired after worship. Like you exercise yourself. Like you were like, yeah, dancing badly, swinging them hands, twirling or doing what you do to just say, God, I love you. I'm breaking the box. You're so good. I mean, what are you saving all your energy for? Pour it out on the Lord. Get tired of some church. Have some church. Get vocal. Participate. Get your emotions involved. Have some church as Mary taught us to do. And she breaks the box. And one of the things that we learn from Mary of Bethany, she stands out among those in the gospel in that she is the one who we most frequently see coming to the feet of Jesus. And I just want to point out a few instances where we see the heart of Mary and how she got that Mary heart at the feet of Jesus. And the first instant we see Mary at the feet of Jesus is in Luke chapter 10. And at, at that point, the first point of our three this morning is simply we see Mary learning at the feet of Jesus. And this is the, the very well-known classic scene in the gospel narrative where Jesus and his disciples have come over to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home, and they're all sitting there. So just imagine you ladies, like 13 men have now entered your house, and you're supposed to be preparing food for them. And so Martha, in her classic form, is in the kitchen. Pots are boiling, uh, flowers flying. She's sweating. She's got her apron covered in who knows what as she's making the food. And her sister Mary isn't helping in the kitchen. She's sitting at the feet of the rabbi. She's acting like one of the rabbi's disciples, a Talmudim, which uh, that alone breaks a box. A woman acting like a disciple, females being disciples of Jesus. Yes, Jesus was breaking a box. Mary was breaking a box as she sits and learns at the feet of the rabbi with the other disciples. And Martha comes out of the kitchen. I just imagine this See, You husbands that don't help with the dishes know what this is like. You know, you know, sometimes your wife can communicate a lot without many words. Hands on the hips, that look in her eye. And she says, Lord, don't you care about me? Tell my sister Mary, that lazy no good, to get up and help me. And Jesus looks at Martha, probably smiling, a little glimmer in his eye. Martha, Martha, you troubled about many things. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich would have been fine. But don't take this part away from Mary because she has chosen the better part. Where Mary is is where Mary needs to be, learning at my feet. And Jesus validates Mary's heart to be at the feet of Jesus. So the first time we see her at Jesus' feet, she's learning at Jesus' feet. But the next time we see Mary at Jesus' feet is a very different scenario, is the, the last story we went through in John, here in John chapter 11, we see her mourning at Jesus' feet. 
not just learning, mourning. Her brother Lazarus had died. And to see the distinction between the two sisters, Mary and Martha, according to true form, when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, now that her brother is dead, I mean, she comes at him. Lord, if you had only been here, our brother would not be dead. And while Martha comes at Jesus, John tells us that Mary sat still in the house until she finally heard from Martha, Martha, the teacher wants to see you. And, and, and Mary runs and she says the exact same words that Martha says, but she says it from the ground. She falls down at Jesus' feet. Lord, if you'd only been here, our brother would not be dead. And sometimes in grief, in times of mourning, it's not what you say. It's the posture you take when you're saying it. And in Mary's grief, she's in broken humility. She doesn't understand why Lazarus is dead even any more than her sister Martha, but she comes not with clenched fist, blaming God, but asking God, why? And sometimes when life just hits you upside the head and gets real heavy, that's sometimes all you can do is just fall at the feet of Jesus and say, God, I, I need to know why. Like, why are things like this, why has life become so difficult and heavy? Mary actually reminds me of an Old Testament character in the way that she handles her life frequently at the feet of Jesus. She reminds me of the Old Testament character Job. And Job, we're told, was one of the wealthiest, most important men in his day in the land of Uz where he lived. He was wealthy and prominent. And during a time of prosperity, we're told that Job would wake up every morning and sacrifice for his seven sons and his three daughters, praying, Lord, maybe they have cursed you and sinned against you in their hearts. And every day, Job would get up and sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of his children when he was prospering, when he was doing well. He was still before the face of God. But then, as you know, his life takes a drastic, dire turn. And in the first chapters of Job, we watch a very prominent, wealthy, affluent, healthy, happy man get stripped of everything it means to be happy and human and flourishing. As you know, the story, well-known story, all of his livestock, all of his, like literally they had stocks back in that day, not stocks and bonds, but stocks. That's how they made their living. And so he watches all of his camels and his donkeys and his sheep all get wiped out in just a matter of moments. All of his servants are killed. His seven sons and three daughters are all together in one home and the house collapses on top of them and they're all dead. And just a matter of moments, Job's life goes from the pinnacle of blessing to the valley of, of, of the shadows of death. His life is in ruin and rubble. And, and, and what's, what's to take from him only now but his own health? Save his life Job would suffer in every way it means to be human. He would experience the deepest losses. And as he sits on the dunghill, full of boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, painful boils the Bible describes. He's there sitting there scraping his boils and he says, naked I came out of my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes it away. And what does he finish with? Blessed be the name of the Lord hard words to say from the dunghill. Easy words to say when you're on the back of a, you know, a ski boat on the lake. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As you drive in your fancy car and live in a nice house and your kids are healthy and you got money in the bank. But it's very different to say it from the dunghill where everything's been taken away. And Mary was this sort who would learn at the feet of Jesus and then when it all comes crashing down, where does Mary go? Back to the feet of Jesus. At every season of life. Paul said it this way, I've learned how to be content, whether to be abased or whether to abound. When, when things are good, oh God, thank you. I lay down in green pastures. But when things are difficult, abased, I still say, God, blessed be the name of the Lord. You give and you take away Blessed be your name. Mary 
learning at the feet of Jesus, mourning at the feet of Jesus. Then finally we see her here pouring at the feet of Jesus. What did she pour out at Jesus' feet? Well, it's called nard or spike nard. It's a very expensive perfume, a plant that's found in the far reaches of India. And so it's very rare and very expensive. And it would have been customary to take just a few drops and anoint the head, the feet of an honored guest. But that's not what Mary does. She dumps all of it out on Jesus' head. She dumps it all out so much so that the whole room is filled with the fragrance of the spikenard that Mary lavishly pours out. But it doesn't just say that she poured it out. It says that she broke the box, Mark chapter 14. Now, like Bible teachers like to do this, um, we don't know why Mary broke the box, but I'm going to take an educated guess. So we're going to assume as to why Mary would have gone from just an extraordinary act, or, or excuse me, just a, uh, an act of lavishness to an act that's extraordinary by breaking the box. Why did she break it? Well, perhaps one reason was to simply demonstrate that there is nothing left in this. So if I pour something out, you know, there could still be a little left in the bottle. But when I break that thing, it's all out. And, and almost it seems like symbolically she's saying, Jesus, it's all yours. I have nothing left. I've poured all of this out upon you in this extravagant act of worship. But there was actually a custom in the East that whenever a very distinguished guest would come to your house, whatever, let's say, glass or plate that they would eat or drink on, you would then take that glass or that plate and break it and symbolically saying that no lesser person would ever eat or drink off of this glass or this plate. And so Mary is, is adoring Jesus and breaking the box, breaking her alabaster over him and pouring it all out upon him. But notice what the men in the room are doing. The men in the room are doing what men sometimes do when, they're, when women spend money, right? Right? They start freaking out and calculating and uh, being pragmatic and figuring out how much is that going to cost. And honey, can I see the price tag on that? Did you keep a receipt after you came back from the grocery store? And, and so the men in the room, they're all calculating. They're like, man, this is an expensive worship set. Man, this, how much did this church service cost? And, and, and we're told that Judas, of all people, is there calculating the cost of Mary's extravagant act of worship. And he speaks up and says, this was worth the wages of a laborer. This is a year's wages. It'd be equivalent of saying 30 Gs in our context. $30,000 worth of perfume was dumped out in a moment. And Judas, in the name of social justice, says, we should have sold it and gave it away to the poor. But the Bible says that it wasn't because he cared about the poor, but he was a thief and he held the money back hiding behind social justice, saying it's a, it's a waste to worship. Give it to the poor when all along he had a different agenda. And Jesus defends Mary's extravagant act of worship. So this would have been her dowry. This is what would, she would have had to give a husband one day and she gives it to the Lord saying, you have all of me, Lord. You're my husband. And, and Jesus defends this act of worship by telling Judas and the other disciples, the poor you have with you always. My time here is limited. This woman had more insight than all y'all. I know he was Southern. He said it that way. This woman had more insight than the, the lot of you because she has done this in preparation for my burial. Now in the room, you have men who have studied Torah, men who have been Jesus' disciples. How many times did Jesus tell them, I'm going to die? I'm headed to the cross. And somehow they missed out on what Mary picked up on. She's now the theologian in the room. Worshiping Mary saw what the men who had studied Torah, the theologians, the thinkers had all missed out on. She was preparing Jesus for his burial. She was preparing Jesus for the inevitable end. And Mark chapter 14, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus said about Mary's act, 
wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Imagine that. That Jesus said, not only did she do more than you and see more than all of you in the room, she's not to be rebuked. You have the poor with you always. I'm here for a limited time. She's anointed me for burial. But on top of that, what she did is recorded in all four of the gospels. And Jesus said, every time the gospel is told, this story of the final week of Jesus, her act will be remembered. This is a big deal to Jesus, that someone would worship him like this, that someone would give so much for the sheer cause of just saying, Jesus, I love you, and I'm grateful for you, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to be at your feet, pouring it all out. But the final thing I just want us to consider for the morning, and it actually comes out of Mark's gospel again, um, Jesus makes a comment about Mary's worship in Mark chapter 14, verse 8. And it's worth noting, and it's something I feel like the Lord would maybe want to say prophetically to, to many of us this morning. But listen to what Jesus says, Mark chapter 14, verse 8, about Mary's act. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Think of that phrase, just that one phrase in verse eight. She did what she could. She could not stop the priests from falsely accusing Jesus. She could not stop the government for condemning him. She could not stop the soldiers from taking him away. She wasn't strong enough. She couldn't stop the angry crowds from mocking him. But Jesus says about Mary, she did what she could. And I know that for some of us, we need to hear that as it comes to our relationship with Jesus, there are times he just looks at you and said, you've done what you've could, and that's enough. I, I sometimes live under these dark clouds of, of self-condemnation, of Lord, I could be doing so much more for you. Why can't I be more for you. Why? I wish I was smarter. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had, you know, no, I mean, I, Lord, I, I wish I could do so much more for you than I'm able to. And the Lord says, hold it. You did what you could. I mean, Mary would have liked to get in front of the moving train for Jesus, but Jesus, almost as if he was saying to Mary, Mary, listen, I know you don't want me to go to the cross, but this is what I'm destined to do. I have to die. I love that you love me, but you've got to let me go. You did what you could. And I'm here right now, and you can worship me. And, and for some of you overachievers, you type threes on the Enneagram, you, you who are, are, are overachievers, always pushing, it's never enough, it's never good enough. Sometimes Jesus would just say, you did what you could and it's enough. All you can do is all you can do. And all you can do is enough. It's really difficult though because of the fact that this final week of Jesus' life, it ends by him hanging on a cross. And what do we all think? What should we all think when we think of Jesus hanging on a cross? We think of all that he accomplished, all that he did for me, all he did for us. How valuable that act of dying on a cross was for the world. And it's in that that we can often feel, Lord, I wish I could do more because look at all you did. But the point of Christianity is not about you trying to repay Jesus. It's just you doing as much as you can. And recognizing that it's in those beautiful acts where you pour it all out. Like James exhorted us this morning. I like that. He came back from the drum set and said, let's just give it all to Jesus this morning. Let's, let's just pour out. Like, let's get tired in church. Church is not a passive spectator sport. Coming to give something to Jesus requires something of you. Yes, I come to get, but I primarily come to give. And it's in giving that we receive. Paul said it, Jesus, he quoted Jesus, said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. 
And so we come to church, we come here, and we, we may feel like, Lord, I don't know if I do enough, I don't know if I am enough, and Jesus just says, you've done what you could. And that's enough. She went to the feet of Jesus at every season of life. What season of life are you in right now? Is this a time to be learning at the feet of Jesus? Is this a time of difficulty mourning at the feet of Jesus? Are you in a season where it's just, you need to pour out. God has been generous with you. You've got spike nard around your neck. You've got a box full of precious ointment. You've got life and vitality and energy. Pour it out on the Lord. Is your life being poured out on the Lord? Poured out for the Lord? For the Lord and others, but for the Lord first. So we can't put others in front of the Lord because then we get into this Judas mentality where Judas thinks, do it for others and not for Jesus. And Jesus says, first me and then them. You'll always have them. There's a time to just go big with the Lord. Lavish with the Lord. Pour it out before the Lord. I mean, when was the last time you felt wrung out before the Lord? Like, I just gave it to you, Lord. I've cried, I've worshiped, I've sang, I've danced, I've, I've lifted my hands, I broke my box. I'm at your feet at the times of learning and at your feet in times of mourning and at your feet pouring out, pouring out. Oh God, you've been so good. I lift my hands to you, oh God, as the psalmist declared that I should. I bow my knee before you, Lord. I fall prostrate on my face before you, Lord. I, I use my life and my vitality. I break the box at your feet. Emmaus, we're supposed to be a worshiping people, amen? Worshiping people with what we do outside of here, but this is also a time to worship. When we're singing, giving praise to God, may God give you the kind of gratitude that so fills and bubbles up over your heart that like Mary, you just break boxes. You don't care or aren't concerned about other people think because you know how good God is. I don't care if you all think I'm a weirdo. When it's me and Jesus and you, he rates over you. You're uncomfortable with me expressing myself to God? I'm not concerned about that. I'm going to break the box. If people criticize, Jesus defends the worshiper every time. He defends the extravagant act of worship and says, leave her alone. What she's doing, she's doing for me. And it's beautiful and it will always be remembered. God, give us hearts like Mary's. I end with this, uh, E. Stanley Jones, uh, a profound Methodist missionary and theologian of a generation ago, was actually a, a profound uh, missionary to India and actually learned a lot uh, to teach us over here in the West about the way of the East and worship. Um, but he had an experience where he went to go see the famed sculpture by Thors Walden, the Danish sculptor called the Christus, in a cathedral in Copenhagen. And this is what he writes about his experience going to see this great sculpture, the Christus. He says, as I walked up the cathedral aisle to see the wonderful statue, I was almost overcome with awe. But as I walked along, my Danish friend whispered, you will not be able to see his face unless you kneel at his feet. And it was true for Christ was standing with outstretched arms, but looking down. I knelt at his feet and only then was his face looking into mine. You can't really see Christ until you surrender to him. Those who start afar off surveying him never really see his face. So bend the knee. Be conquered by him. Surrender yourself. The key to having a merry heart, heart like Mary's, is really just coming to the feet of Jesus and breaking the box. That's my challenge for us this week and even this morning is that we would look at our lives and ask God which way can I now really ex you know, exert myself in worship to you. Rising in the morning with a song or silence, a walk on a greenway, Hillsong in your ears, uh, worshiping Jesus, just taking time to expend the energy. And even this morning, 
just saying as the band will come up and we'll eat and drink communion as we take just this time to just say, maybe this morning you're just, your heart is being moved toward the goodness of God and you just want to get down on your knees or you just want to put your hands up in the air or you feel like dancing or you feel like crying or you just want, but it doesn't matter what it looks like. It's just that you know that you're breaking the box when you do this act of worship. And for some of us, I'm including myself because this is sometimes this half of my brain, who tends to be more pragmatic and calculated and conservative, breaking the box doesn't sound much like me. Listen, Christianity isn't about your personality type. Jesus loves your personality type. He made you as you are. There are times when he says, I I love you as you are, but I did not love you that way to keep you that way. Do you know that Jesus wants to grow some of you? Some of you are very emotional. Worship is very easy for you. You're like, break the box. Woo, when can we start? Brian, shut up and get the band up there. And some of you guys are like, oh, no, not more singing. I don't want to sing. I'm not a singer. I don't have a good voice and I'm not emotional. Listen, doesn't matter. If Jesus is worthy of it, he's worthy of it, period. And the Bible says when you see him, you will drop to your knees even if you're not a knee-dropping type. And you will open that mouth and you will say, Jesus Christ is Lord without even being able to control it. Every knee, even the most stoic person, the hardened atheist, boom, to the knees, mouth open, Jesus Christ is Lord. I see him, I behold him. Even the most boring person in here is gonna get real charismatic. Even the most stayed calm, don't lift your hands, don't wanna even move your hips a little bit during the music. I mean, you're, you're gonna be overwhelmed by the sight and the sound and the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And so practice now, y'all. Jesus is going to show up in such glory that every single one of us is gonna be an exuberant worshiper. And so my challenge for us this morning is to go beyond just lip service to Jesus, but to have a heart like Mary's and break the box and be a worshiping church. There are some places I'm convinced, although the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, I do think when a group of people will come together and worship Jesus, and even put aside all the activities we could be doing and just say, first and foremost, we are worshiping people before we're anything else. God bends his ear. I think heaven's favor is on a community that worship Jesus. The Bible says we, when we give praise to the Lord, we create for him a temple. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. The Bible says that we bring forth a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name, but we must express energy. It's gonna be costly. It's gonna be box breaking. It's gonna break you out of your box. But Jesus is worth busting the box for. Worship like you're a sinner that got saved yesterday. And who cares what everybody else is saying? Forget how many years you've been in church and all the bad theology you learned about whatever. And just say, Jesus, if, if, if you are present and my sins are forgiven and you're so good, I am going to stop playing church and I'm going to start breaking boxes. I'm not just sitting here at this dinner table and criticizing all the people that are extravagant. I'm going to get it. You know, it's real hard to criticize people around you when you ain't even paying attention to them. It's just like, Lord, I've just caught up in you. It's just, you're so good. I pray that we have a joyous, deep experience as we Not only sing, sing isn't the extent of our worship, but as we give ourselves with energy over to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. The band's gonna come up, as you know. You could probably guess. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the object of our praise, the reason for our exuberance and enthusiasm. And I pray for every person that's in here, whatever season they find themselves in, 
whether it's a learning season or a mourning season or just a time to pour out. Teach us to be box breakers, Lord. Worshippers. People who know how to let themselves go in the presence of God. Father, I pray that we would be able to create an environment where your name is lifted high, where your praises are sung, where your goodness is being extolled, where we express our emotion and our love and our adoration to you, O Lord. We know that the heavens will reveal one day just how wonderful you are. And when we see you with unveiled faces, in that moment, automatically praise will exude from the core of our being. We so long to praise. We so need to praise. We have a need to extol the Lord. And Father, I pray this morning that we would align with how we're hardwired. We're hardwired to give back to you. We're hardwired to acknowledge great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We're hardwired to lift up our voice and everything that has breath, praise the Lord. God, you've made us for that. You've made us to look upon and behold your beauty and your goodness and declare it and to make it known to the angels that are in this room. We make known the praises of God to the devils that are at work in the environment. We make known the praises of God to our doubting and and, and often heavy hearts to a world that is just sideways. God, we make known the praises of our God. We, We lift up our heart with our hands to the Lord. And God, I pray that this morning that that the worship would be meaningful and from a deeper part in us than we've exercised in a really long time. That, That it would be to worship from the gut, to worship from the innermost, the deeper parts, God, that we would have face to face communion with you. Although there are people around, this is a good space for us to enter in to the joy of the Lord, to enter into an environment where we can break the box, where we can arise from the dinner and we can do a merry. We can just fill the room with the fragrance of worship and box breaking spike nard in worship and praise. So Father, help us now. We need help in this. Some of us are resistant to this, God. Some of us, um, uh, this comes more easily. But for all of us, God, we're being called into this this time of worship, this time to praise. Be praised and worshiped, O Lord.